Amen. We, we do ask those things in his name because we want to be a generation, whatever generation you're from, that seeks the face of God. And so I love thinking about that song as a prayer. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you know that life still has its ups and downs. And there are moments where it's not just like playing church. It's not just signing up for stuff. It's not just like trying to do good things. There are moments where I realize I'm slipping back into something that God knows isn't good for me and actually need to come back to him in repentance and confession. Say, God, give me clean hands again. Purify my heart again. Show me how to be holy like you are holy, like you want me to live. And that would have been a fantastic prayer for the king that we are going to meet today in 2 Kings 21. In fact, we are moving from Hezekiah who is described as like the best of the best, like the most righteous and godly and successful king they had ever seen. And now it is his son Manasseh who sits on the throne. And Manasseh is the worst of the worst. Not my opinion, the Bible describes him that way. Manasseh goes so far off the deep end into every possible wicked thing that he can. It's like everything that's been described of all of the other evil kings throughout the entire book Manasseh's going to do that stuff today. Because in his head, it's good to be king. King means I can do what I want. King means I have the freedom to do anything with no consequences. And that's, that's the mindset of Manasseh. And as much as we'll be able to pick on him for that, I realize that is often our mindset as well. In fact, I thought about this. It, it, it's sort of like, I think of it as like a teenager mindset. Now, not all teenagers are like I was, but I remember thinking, if my parents really loved me, if my parents really understood me, then they would let me go do this with my friends, go do that thing that I want to do, stop getting me in trouble for this thing, and I just end up getting angry. If they really loved me, they would let me do what I want. And we paint that as like a picture of true freedom, like no one's telling me what to do anymore. But what we know, obviously, is, I mean, you can, maybe if you are a teenager, if you remember being a teenager, imagine if your parents literally let you do whatever you want, instead of being the person who was there to correct you and help you see what's good and what's bad. I know it wouldn't have ended well for me. And so the picture that we get is that Manasseh, in all of his freedom, he gets to do whatever he wants, and kind of the negative place that that ends up. Because not only does that lead him into what the Bible calls sin, the wickedness, the evil that is so far out of line with what God says is good and right and pure, he also leads all of the people of his nation into it. It gets to the point that in our passage today, God is actually going to use the metaphor of a dish to describe how he now is going to wipe out his people from Judah and from Jerusalem because he has to deal with all the evil that has come in. And so as we look at our passage today in 2 Kings 21, I figured we would take this kind of as like three tips for how to get wiped out. Sound good? Okay, I hope not. I hope you hear that's tongue in cheek. We are going to look at it that way, but that means these are obviously things you don't want to do. And they reflect like everything that every other evil king has done along the way that keeps getting them removed from the throne until we finally reach this point that God says they need to be wiped out. So step one to get wiped out by God. Copy the evil of the culture around you. All right, this is what Manasseh was doing. 
It says that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, which means he, he literally was going to be a teenager king. You can imagine how difficult that would be. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. 55 years. That's the longest of any king we've seen in this book. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So if you rewind in the Bible, you get these pages where God says, because of all of the evil of these other nations, I'm removing them from the land and I'm giving it to you. Now it's saying all that stuff they were doing that got them kicked out, that's what Manasseh is doing. All of it. He's doing what the nations before them were doing. It goes on in verse 3 to be a little more specific. It says, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had just destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. He made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven like sun, moon, and stars and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. That last verse, if you go back to Deuteronomy, it's almost word for word what God warned them. The people in the land were doing, don't be like them, do not do these things or you will face consequences for it. And some of the consequences are built right into these actions. That, that phrase that he made his son pass through the fire. As historians and scholars have leaned into this, essentially what that means is they would build a metal idol, heat it up, and then lay a child on its blazing hot hands and listen as they screamed as they burned to death. As a sacrifice to some false god to ask them for victory in war or, or something like that. That literally Manasseh is willing to kill his own children to pursue his own success and desires. Whew. Step two. Replace God with your favorite desires. Again, something that we've seen the kings do all the way through. Here's what it looked like for Manasseh. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, Right? So the guy who got the plans for the temple and the guy who actually built it, God said, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I give their fathers, only if they're careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. We just saw that he's ignored everything that Moses had written in Deuteronomy that he's supposed to be doing. And instead, in the place that is meant for the worship of the name of the Lord God, he's replaced it with this Asherah. So Asherah is Baal's mom. She was the goddess of fertility to the nations around there. And so essentially what that means is that they worship the goddess of fertility through sex. Sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, that's how you worship Asherah. And so for us, it's kind of strange because we look at some of these things and it sounds so foreign. Like, who is Baal? What is an Asherah? I'm not even sure I've heard of Solomon. Like, you have to Google these things sometimes to find out, like, what was that thing in history? 
And yet the stuff that's underneath this is often frighteningly familiar. Because our culture worships sex too. Right? Our entertainment is loaded with it. And in some ways we've become so desensitized to it that there are layers we never would have looked at before that now it's like, well, that's just normal. Pornography is huge business. We've even turned sex into an identity. We may not be that far off from an Asherah in our own day. In fact, the other piece of this is that actually idol worship was big business. You see this in the New Testament as well, that a lot of times it's not even like they really believe this stuff, but they just know you can sell a lot of people a lot of little statues. And so financially, business-wise, this becomes the primary motivation in life. Okay, so when you start copying the culture around you, when you start to give God's place to your favorite desires, well, then when God begins to warn you, step three to getting wiped out, ignore God's warnings and his prophets who are trying to give them. Because you'll notice that all through the book, God keeps coming in and saying, hey, wait a minute, that's the thing that's gonna break. That's the thing that's actually gonna hurt you. I know you think you want that, but trust me, you do not. And so finally it says, verse nine, they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So now we're doing even more than they were. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. Like you're gonna go red in the face just by hearing what God is going to do to deal with this. And I want you to notice a word there. He calls these abominations. It's actually the second time that he's used that phrase in this passage. And I think that's important because sometimes it is too easy to sort of brush away our mistakes, brush away the places that our lives are out of line with God by saying, hey, nobody's perfect. Hey, we all make mistakes. And there is a grace-filled truth to that in the story of the Bible, that God actually knows that, that he created us as human and so he knows we're only human and that we make mistakes, and that nobody's perfect, but he never just brushes them away. It's important for us to realize that it's, it's not just a matter of, hey, I wanna be king of my own life, and I don't think it's that bad, and I don't feel like I'm hurting anybody. God sees this stuff as abomination. That's a big word. And so because of that, in verse 13, he says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, who's already in captivity for their evil, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, who died for his evil, he's saying, I'm gonna measure you against that so you can see that you're the same, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down, so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. So the picture of wiping the dish is that God is saying it's not enough to just kind of shake it out and there's a little bit still in there, but that's good enough. He's saying he's gonna turn it over and wipe it completely out. And the reason for that is because he knows that what's in there is deadly. It's too dangerous to just leave it there. 
and it's permeated all through everything that to really remove it, he's going to have to remove his people. So earlier this week, on a little bit of a lighter note, my wife and my daughter were making brownies. Doesn't that sound better than all this stuff about Manasseh? So the brownie batter is sitting on the counter. It's waiting for the oven to heat up, which means I'm not touching it. It's got raw eggs and stuff in there, but it sure looks good. And so I'm just thinking about the brownies. But while we wait, I've got some stuff i got to get done. So I had some stuff I was trying to clean. And you know how like when those stickers from the store are on stuff, the best way to get them off? Goo gone. If you didn't know it, this is like miracle worker kind of stuff. Well, so the brownies are on the counter, but the counter's a great place to do little projects. And so I'm sitting on the counter, I'm looking at the brownies, and I'm squirting my goo gone. Did that just go in the... Uh-oh. Okay, now I'm trying to think about this because the brownies are supposed to go in in like two minutes, right? Um, I know. Okay, hold on. Let me see. I can kind of see a little bit like if I do... Am I making it better or worse? Have you ever tried to wipe goo gone out of gooey brownie batter? Guess what doesn't work? <laughs> and so I'm over here, I'm like, maybe I can soak it up. I'm like, this is ridiculous, what am I doing? But you know what, the main ingredient here is oranges. I mean, that's the thing that makes it. And I've had a chocolate orange like at Christmas, right? So it's possible, and maybe, um... oh hey, look at this. Harmful or fatal, if swallowed. I'm not sure I'm going to get it all. <laughs> so finally, really, the only choice I have is what? It's not to try to soak it out, wipe it up, scoop a little bit. I've got to wipe the whole dish. I've got to dump the whole thing out, all the brownie batter into the garbage, all the gooey paper towel, soap and water, and scrub that thing and dry it out and wipe it out until it's perfectly clean. The obvious reason being, I'm not talking about something that enhances flavor. <laughs> You know, we think that these things in our lives, maybe they'll be more fun, maybe they'll be better, but when I'm looking at that, if there's the possibility that it kills my children, I'm going to deal with it completely. And that's why God says this. Because he has promises that he has made that are going to happen through the people of Israel. That are going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And he is not letting those promises go. So, if he has to, He'll wipe everything out to get that cleaned up. It's the same kind of language that Jesus uses in the New Testament with the Pharisees. He tells them, you guys, you keep trying to clean the outside of the dish like you're fooling everybody. We can see the batter in there. You need to be cleaned completely on the inside. Well, so let's see what happens to Manasseh. Verse 16 says, moreover, oh my goodness, there's more. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, there's more? All that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Who wants to go read more in Chronicles? <laughs> Maybe I'll just stay here. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and then his son Amon reigned in his place. New king, maybe this gives us a chance for something good. Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned only two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz, son of Joppa. Okay, okay. Ah, man. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord 
as his father Manasseh had done. Guys, this is how bad Manasseh is. We no longer compare people to Ahab or Jeroboam to try to give you a sense of just how bad they were. Right? Like we, like we do this today, right? We say, I mean, this is like Hitler levels of evil. Like you pull out names like that to try to be clear. Manasseh replaces all previous names. Now if you want to know how bad somebody is, you compare them to Manasseh. So his own son walked in all the ways that his father had walked, served the idols that his father had worshipped. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and then they made his son Josiah king in his place. Now, the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. All right, deep breath. Because what we heard was just basically 26 straight verses of as bad as it gets. And this kind of stuff can be hard to read. I know sometimes this is why we feel like, see, this is why I don't read the Bible, man. This is why I don't want to go to the Old Testament. There's all this evil and wickedness, and then God's talking about wiping people out. And yet at the same time as you read this, it's like 55 years of this guy? Like, where is God? If God is good, why isn't he going to do something about all the ways that, I mean, he's shedding innocent blood. He's killing his own kids. Like, when is God going to do something? And sometimes it's hard to imagine, like, this level of evil. And so it told us that there's a little bit more about him in 2 Chronicles. And I know I joked about it, but I'm actually going to turn to 2 Chronicles. Don't panic. I'm going to skip the part where it lists all of his sins, because we just heard that. But in 2 Chronicles 33.10, it says this. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Yes! Finally! It is about time, God! Like, he had this coming, and he deserves this, and I know because God said so. God said, I'm going to wipe you out. And you've got to understand, when it says that the Assyrians carried him off to Babylon, that is the last group of people you want to be carried off by. In fact, in carvings just like this one, they actually brag about how violent they are with their captives, all the new ways of torture that they created. So some of what I'm about to say is why the PG-13 sign is out there. Plug your ears if you want. The way they drag you into captivity, they put a metal ring through your nose and literally hook into it and drag you through the desert back to Babylon. And they make it especially bad for kings because they want to make an example of you. So make sure the king doesn't die on the way because we're going to keep him in prison and torture him. Like this is what Assyria was known for. This is why they were such an enemy of God's people in the Bible. And this is exactly what Manasseh is now experiencing. All the brutal consequences for his wickedness have fallen on his head. And you know what? Good. Good. After what he did, some of that innocent blood was my family. Good. We feel that way because it is hard to imagine that kind of evil. I have a friend of mine who's actually, uh, Ethan, his career is he is a chaplain in a prison in Geauga County, uh, further north in Ohio. 
And so maybe not exactly like Manasseh, but he's seeing some of this kind of just evil on a daily basis with guys who are in the prison, guys who are coming into the prison and he's hearing their stories and what they did and guys who are not sorry, they're angry. They're angry at society, they're angry at God, they're angry at the prison, they're angry at Ethan, they're angry at their parents, right? They're just like entrenched in this thing. I'm like, dude, why walk into that every day? He said the reason that he does that is because he still believes that even though all the stuff that they've done wrong has led them into captivity, sounds familiar, right? I mean, that's one of the messages of the Bible is that I, I think I have this freedom but when I use it to go against God, it's actually putting me in chains. He says he believes that even in their imprisonment, there's still a chance. There's still hope that they would understand who the God of the Bible is. The kind of grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers that they would turn their lives over to him. And it happens. You get hardened criminals sitting in jail who start to read the Bible. Who start to see things in the Bible they never knew were there who start to wonder if they're too far gone or if God could really forgive them and who give their lives over to Jesus Christ. Then they start going around the prison saying, hey, you gotta come to the Bible study. Hey, you gotta come to the Bible study. Hey, you should come to the Bible study because <laughs> they want other people to realize that even while they're still in jail, God has set them free. Okay, that's really cool. But like not Manasseh, right? Okay, come back with me to 2 Chronicles 33. Let's look at verse 12. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty. God received his entreaty. Heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. No way. No way. Like, maybe somebody else, but not Manasseh. I've got a buddy of mine who's, who I've been in a Bible study with, and when he was first kind of rediscovering the Bible, that was like, I, I can hear his voice so clearly in my head. You mean to tell me that if, like, Manasseh, who did this, 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 and this, and Mother Teresa... If he repents, they both get in? Man, that's grace. I mean, you are seeing a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. And guys, this is how we repent. This is what repentance looks like. Because that word repent is a word that literally means to turn around. And so you may think of it as like the first repentance is to admit to God, I'm trying to be king of my own life. I'm doing my own thing, I'm doing my own stuff, I'm in charge. And to say, God, I want to turn from that. I want to trust Jesus as my forgiver, as my savior, as my king. I want him in charge of my life. That's the first repentance. That's what Manasseh is experiencing here. And look at the words that he uses. He implored the Lord. His God. And the God of his fathers, but not just the God of his fathers, not just the God of Israel, the Lord, his God. That it's not just that God is out there somewhere. Am I willing to say, you are my God? And then to humble himself. And a lot of times this is the hardest part. Because it is really hard to admit to myself 
that this is actually sin. I've been trying to explain it away. I've been trying not to think about it. I've been trying not to feel bad about it. But there's got to be a moment where I recognize it's not just mistakes. It's not just nobody's perfect. It's what the Bible calls sin. And humble myself before God and realize I need you to deal with it. And then look at this. God forgives and God restores. And think about what is so beautiful about this. If this is, if this is a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament, the good news, what does Manasseh do to earn God's forgiveness? Nothing. He can't. He's trapped in a Babylonian prison. Right? So he hasn't gotten rid of any of the bad stuff. He hasn't helped any little old ladies across the street. He hasn't been able to donate or worship at the temple. He is chained with a hook through his nose in a Babylonian prison. The only thing he did? Humbly admit to God, you are right. What I've been doing is wrong. I need forgiveness. And did you notice it says that God forgives and restores. That's when Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Not when his dad told him all those years ago because Hezekiah is long dead by now. But maybe he remembered something. Didn't God say that like in your worst moment you can still run to this God who, who acts like a father? And maybe there's a little something in there that in this moment he's not even sure this is going to work. But when God restored him, it says, then he knew. The Lord was God. In fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that every sin that's ever been forgiven was forgiven because of the death on the cross of Jesus Christ. Manasseh could be forgiven because Jesus died. You see, here's one of the scariest truths of the Bible which I know is why you came here today. I, I was listening as you all came in. People were like, I hope I hear one of the scariest truths of the Bible today. <laughs> here it is. No sin goes unpunished. That's scary. But God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, because God is a good God, he has to deal with sin and he has to deal with it completely. But because he is love, because he is a God of mercy and of grace, he made a way to cleanse you without destroying you. That Jesus Christ took the punishment for everything you've ever done wrong or doing wrong or could do wrong. And then he removes the sin. He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that you are forgiven and you are set free. I don't know about you, but I need that good news. Because you imagine if somebody was writing about your life like they're writing about Manasseh's, instead of skipping to the end and saying, hey, we all make mistakes, but in the end he turned to the Lord. No, 26 verses, right? Let me tell you, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. This was evil, this was how, this was wicked, this is who he hurt. You know, if you wrote about my life that way, you could make that kind of list. He lied, he cheated, he stole, he was a complainer, he sinned in his anger, he lusted. I mean, rattle off the Ten Commandments, he dishonored his father and mother. All of that could be written about me. 
And yet there is this message of forgiveness that the Bible offers that I think too often we focus on the guilt and the regret. That there are times, and even when we read passages like this, we feel like he must have been faking it. He must have been trying to trick God. He's just trying to get out of trouble. (laughs) But that when we come to God through Jesus Christ, he takes it away. He takes it away. A few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she had been listening to a message that was essentially framed as like, why is it so critical to Christ followers, to Christians, to understand that um, life begins at conception and that we protect babies in the womb? And so as she listened, you know, she said it went through all the, you know, the passages and things like in the Psalms and the prophets that, that talk about how he knows us, not only from conception, but like even before that, that God already knows us. And she said as she listened, it was amazing. I mean, it was, it was like incredible truth. It was so clear, but it was also just weighing her down with guilt. Because she told me when she was younger, because of some circumstances in her life and some fears about some things, that she had terminated a pregnancy. And so as she listened to this, like since then she'd become a Christ follower, she'd been baptized, I actually volunteered with her together in the church. And she said, I I know that God loves me, but I just felt like this is the one thing that he could never forgive me for. But she said as she kept listening, it was like the second half of the thing that she was listening to was about like now now that we've been clear, that, yeah, we have to call this sin. Can I tell you about a God of grace? And she heard through stories like Manasseh's how there is a God who can forgive anyone. And that when he takes it away, then there's no condemnation. Not, not a little bit, not like he leaves some behind, not like any, but he, want, he wants you to think about this. And she said for the first time in her life, even though she knew what had happened and she knew she was carrying some of the consequences of that and now, now she wanted to be different and help others not make the same choice, it was the first time in her life that she felt like she was free. And guys, that is so often how the enemy tries to work against us. I mean, I've felt it in my own life. And one of the wisest people I've ever known, Ray Swakowski, I'm telling you, I wish you all knew that guy. Because I came to him one day saying, look, I'm feeling this regret, I'm feeling this guilt, like... You know everything that's been in my life, Ray, and, and just what if I'm not really forgiven? What if God is too mad at me? What if that was like the one thing? And what he told me was that this is one of the ways that the enemy likes to work against us. That when he can't get you to sin that way anymore, he can't get you to give in to that temptation anymore, then all he has left is to remind you of how you used to. Ah, oh, you really think God can forgive? Remember what you did? You think God forgives you for that? And I'm telling you, this is part of why you want to read the Bible (laughs) and you want to read it all the time because then you're reading through it and you see a guy like Manasseh and you're like, that is me. I I mean, that's me. I knew it. I knew it. Judgment. I'm too far gone. And you turn the page and God forgave him and restored him. In fact, tradition says that it was actually Manasseh who had the prophet Isaiah put to death. And yet it was words that Isaiah himself prophesied that would have spoken this hope to Manasseh. In Isaiah 55, he writes, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord 
and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That phrase means that it is even more forgiveness than you need is what God can't wait to give you. It's the same thing you would see in the New Testament from a man named Paul who literally called himself the chief of sinners. That means he thinks he's worse than Manasseh. And yet Paul is the one who wrote that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and live not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You see what I learned, what Manasseh learned, what Paul learned, what my friend learned, that is why you can live like you're free. That now, because of that repentance, because of God's forgiveness, we live in forgiveness and freedom. And look at what that looks like for Manasseh. Verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 33, when he gets back from that prison, turns out it wasn't a trick. He wasn't just trying to fool God. God knows the heart. So he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. I love that picture. That Manasseh doesn't just go back to business as usual. He lives like that repentance was real, like he really is forgiven and like he's free to be different now. So he takes the stuff that was broken, corrupt, and out of line with God's plan and he literally throws it away. So look, I don't know what that might be in your past that you need to stop carrying regret and believe that you're forgiven. I don't know what that might be in your present that maybe you feel like it's got you in chains again. I don't know what it is for everybody here, but I spend enough time around enough guys and in our culture, I know that one of those things for us is pornography. That it becomes chains that weigh people down. And how often people try to fix it on their own. I know I was in that place in my own life when what we need is repentance and healing that God actually wants to set us free from it. So to rip that out, like you're better off throwing the computer away or buying one of those phones they make now where they they actually can't get on the internet. They only take phone calls, which is like, that's weird, right? Remember when phones used to only take phone calls? Look, or maybe for you it's gossip. You know, I've been struggling with complaining lately and realizing that's not something that God wants me to just say, well, hey, at least it's not as bad as other stuff I used to do. No, he wants to heal me from that, restore me from that. Whatever it might be, if you're feeling the spirit, put that on your heart. Let's repent of that thing. Because check this out, what he gets to replace it with. It says he also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people, so even though Manasseh is like a one-man revival, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. They go about halfway, but Manasseh's all in. And you notice, after everything he'd done, it doesn't say, and he came back and wallowed in guilt and shame for the rest of his life. It says he came back and he offered peace and thanks. Guys, that is the freedom that we have to live. In peace with God, giving him thanks. That the joy of forgiveness means that I do not live under a weight of guilt and shame and regret. But I live in the freedom of grace and forgiveness and the love of the Lord God. So here's the key takeaway I think we want to take from Manasseh. Repentance turns abomination into no condemnation. 
And if you're sitting there thinking, but you don't know what I did, I'm telling you, it can't be worse than Manasseh. You don't know what I did either. But the Bible is telling you it can't be worse than Manasseh and he was forgiven. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners and he was forgiven. It's why we love stories like Peter's, all the mistakes he makes and yet he is forgiven and restored. And so maybe today, maybe today for you it's that that first time of repentance. I don't know why you're here today. I don't know if you come every week or if somebody invited you. I don't know if you think I'm crazy or if you're kicking the tires on on Christianity or God or Jesus or the Bible but maybe today is the day that for the first time you want to say hey I wouldn't even have used that Bible word like repentance but yeah I want that I want to turn away from doing my own thing I've kind of felt this and maybe that was God trying to speak to me today I want to turn from being my own king I want to trust Jesus for forgiveness and to be my king I'm going to give you a moment in, in just a minute to actually pray that way And maybe you're here and you're like, I've done that. I'm a Christ follower, but I'm struggling. Maybe there's something right now that you feel like has dragged you back down. Then that's when we pray. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. I wish I could find who it was. So if you know, tell me. But it was like Spurgeon or somebody like that. One of these great theologians who said, the longer I'm a Christian, the less I sin, but the more I repent. That is actually a beautiful part of a regular prayer time with God to say, God, is there anything I'm missing Anything that I need to turn over to you. Anything in my heart, in my mind, in my thoughts, with my eyes that isn't honoring to you. Because now that I've tasted how good it is when I let that stuff go, I want you to restore me. So the band is actually going to come out and play one more song for us that is all about that kind of freedom. And so as they come, would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and maybe you just want to pray right now. And maybe you even use these words. God, I know that I'm a sinner too. I don't want to be king of my own life anymore. I don't want to carry guilt and shame and regret anymore. And so today, through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, I trust you for your forgiveness. Or maybe as a Christ follower, you just want to use these words. God, you know there's something in my life that you don't want there. So I am imploring you and humbling you, humbling myself before you. Forgive me. And God, through Jesus Christ, Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that I can live forgiven and free. Amen.